0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast
1: Network.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hackers, malware, and viruses. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today and use the code HUMANIST10 for a limited time 10% discount. And before I begin today's episode, a quick life update. I'm currently writing a book, uh, which is exciting. It's about our exponential and fragile context and how crypto can help us smooth the transition through this digital revolution. Uh, So I'm not sure on the title yet, uh, but I'll be posting updates through Medium and on Twitter. um, So check me out there and hoping to have it done by the end of this year. So I'll let you know also through the podcast when that happens. Uh, Cool. So let's get to today's episode. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, So in today's episode, I chat with Liv Boree, who's a really good poker player, and she's also a, a rationalist and effective altruist. And we channel about a lot in today's episode. We talk about her um, charity to to get rich poker players to give back money. We talk about, um, you know, thinking about how to do best in the world and existential risk versus stuff like factory farming. Um, we talk about consequentialism from a philosophical level. Uh, we also talk about, you know, taking her poker playing mindset and applying it to crypto. Uh, and we also talk about the power of thinking and probability. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty Uh, jam-packed episode, and I want to kind of pull off kind of two uh, kind of philosophical things that we chat about around consequentialism. So, and as a reminder, consequentialism is it's, it's a moral framework to judge your actions, and it's a very kind of outcome-based mindset, kind of a utilitarian and ends-based mindset. It's what a lot of effective altruists use, and you say, hey, okay, let's judge this action based off of, you know, the impact it created on the world. And it's different than um, something like virtue ethics or deontology, which is more of a means-based uh, mindset where you say, okay, you should abide by a set of virtues like honesty or whatever. So those are kind of the two different things, essentially the classic um, ends versus means argument. And it's weird because, so so I asked Liv about, you know, hey, you know, what what does she not like about consequentialism? And and the thing that's powerful about consequentialism is that, and this is kind of a weird concept to get, um, it's it's what we would call, like, what I would call, like, meta-right, or it's anti-fragile, or, like, wins from the process level. And what I mean by that is, when you talk with a the consequentialist, there are kind of two pieces to this. So when you talk with a consequentialist, you'll weird thing is they're always happy to be proven wrong they're always kind of searching um they're just searching for the truth you know um and and not to be right uh so they're happy when they update their beliefs and things like that and so really you, you're kind of working with them um on, on the process level they're they're very much like oh tell me how i'm wrong and how can i change and so it's tough to to beat a thing that has been designed from the start to uh to to love it when it is being told it's wrong and then to change as a result um kind of kind of a piece of that is like, and, and a key piece at the, the kind of bottom of this is that, and this is something that I recently read about in, in the book, is it's, it's hard to break consequentialism, at least at a first glance, I'm not really sure here, but and it's because when people try to break it, you say, hey, well, you know, that's, you know, you're talking about this thing, and it's very outcome-based, and it's actually bad in this specific scenario, because you should have used, you know, virtue ethics over here, or, you know, that's a situation that really requires honesty, or whatever, and you're like, okay, that's interesting, in that situation, how are you judging good or bad in that situation, and when you Ask people that question and keep asking that question. They usually judge good or bad based off of the outcomes um, that, that it that it creates. Or so like, oh, it's bad over here because it created a bad outcome. And you're like, oh, well, that's pretty much consequentialist. Um, and so this is to say, like, in other words, when people object to consequentialism, they often do so by claiming bad consequences. Um, and so this is this weird kind of process level meta property that consequentialism has, where it can answer most objections to it by turning them into consequences. Um, or in other words. It's like, it's, it's powerful because it can take the objections, turn it into consequence, and, and thereby subsuming those kind of objections into its own worldview. Um, so that's kind of a weird concept, but I think it's mostly correct, or at least vectorially correct. Um, and, and the weird piece with it too is that if you kind of connect it to some of the stuff that's happening today with the intellectual dark web, so there's a group of people, I haven't chatted about them too much on the show yet, but it's, it's kind of a fascinating weird group of people um, who are, in theory, these kind of like rationalist public intellectuals like brett weinstein jordan peterson sam harris and i don't want to go into their claims right now and they all have different claims they're all very different people and there's lots of texture there but i want to talk about how they operate at the meta level and at kind of the process conversational level and As an example here, Brett Weinstein was moderating a debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, and he opened the, in theory, the debate with something where he said, hey, so let's have each of you give the strongest version of the other's argument. So they were essentially doing a steel manning of it, where they said, hey, make sure that you can give the best version of the other person's argument, the version that they would super agree with, and then let's move on from there. Um, And so that, just as a process... That's that seems great, um, and, and, the, and the process level seems right. Their actual claims, again, that's a wholly totally different subject. But I think that we should feel free to say yes when people are doing good process level work. Um, so, this is I'll say. It's gonna. I'm excited to have folks on my show later who are gonna push back on consequentialism more, um, and then we'll kind of be able to turn this kind of binary gradient into a synthesis where we understand the power of uh, virtue ethics as well. Um, so that's one one piece here. Um, the other piece is another kind of fascinating part about consequentialism is, and something that Liv talked about is you couldn't really do consequentialism back in the day. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of it's a data-driven kind of moral framework, and it would have been tough to do that pre-science, pre-enlightenment. Um, so at that time, it made sense to do, you know, more of a religion-driven, kind of symbol-driven, because you know, people couldn't, there were many more illiterate people. Um, it made sense to have that kind of virtue-ethic moral framework back then um, instead of a consequentialist framework. And... But now, you know, it's 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 possible to have consequentialism as a moral framework, um, and and Liv was making these claims about how, as we go forward into the future with more data and big data and all these things, it'll increase um, our ability to do consequentialist work. And I, and I, whether or not I agree with that or not, I kind of want to take a step back, um, and say this from a high level when you think about these macro transitions that occur and when i'm talking about these macro transitions i'm talking about like agricultural revolution industrial revolution information revolution these big shifts in how information and capital flow and how power work um and when you think about the kind of macro systemic level these kind of dominant macro institutions that exist these are nation states religious institutions firms markets um, how people coordinate together that those dominant um, institutions, they, they compete with each other, they co-evolve with each other, they, they change. Um, you know, for example, uh, as the Industrial Revolution happened, there was a decrease in the power of the church and an increase in the power of the nation state. Um, and, and that, those dominant institutions, not only do they operate off of, you know, capital and violence and things of that variety, but they also um, operate with myths that, that try to match their reality. Um, and these are kind of stories that reinforce the dominant institution, and this is kind of what Liv is getting at, is that you know, a key part of the, the myth is is this moral framework that, that's based around it, and the value set that's based around it. And so back in the day, if consequentialism wasn't really possible as a, a moral framework, um, given... The fact that, you know, uh, given the dominant, you know, the the dominant institution at the time and the way that, you know, we understood information at the time, that happened back in the day and it has now shifted, so too should we expect our moral frameworks to change um, based off of these, uh, the the shift in dominant institutions based off this information revolution. So if right now we have certain dominant institutions with certain myths around them, um, as we continue to propagate through this information revolution what are the myths how are the myths going to change and how are the moral frameworks going to change so as a specific question here um kind of a weird example what moral framework should be associated with like a meme as an institution that that's kind of uh, gets you where my mind is going here um and this is all say this is all part of this kind of macro piece here where as we um As we go forward into the future we've had this really good and this is kind of daniel schmachtenberger stuff where we've had a good um version of is and ought um and 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 the is piece is science you know it's like it's science is a great process to determine um how what is true in the world um but ought you know what should we do what is good in the world that's more difficult and we don't have a good process for that yet um and the issue is that as science science has Done such a good job it's given us so much more power it's given us distributed exponential technology but it hasn't given us the responsibility with that and, and so what is our current theory of choice today? Well, right now, our dominant theory of choice is this kind of monetarily-based game theory, and that won't work long-term. Um, as we've seen with many of our existential risks, game theory is the, the kind of generator function for them, and we need a better theory of choice than game theory. Um, and in fact, and we don't just need a better theory of choice, we need a process, a scientific um, method-style process for determining that theory of choice. So. This i will say, the question here is, what does a scientific method look like when you apply it to morality and ethics? Um, Yeah. So with that, sorry to wax philosophical a bit, um, but I I really did enjoy this episode with Liv, and we talked about those things and many others, um, and hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this podcast, we take a systems-thinking approach to doing good in the world. We have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today, we're going to focus on both Series A Macro Systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And we'll talk a little bit about Series B Human Systems, where we ask the question, how can we as humans be more effective? Um, And to talk about both those things, I'm very happy to introduce Liv Bori to the show. Uh, Liv is, among other things, like astrophysics. She's um, here she's, <laughs> Liv is interested in many things and astrophysics. She's a professional poker player. She's a champion um, in both the European Poker Tour and the World Series of Poker. She has more than $3.5 million in tournament winnings. And she's also the co founder of Reg Charity, a fundraising collective of poker stars that has raised over $6.5 million for cost effective charities through donating a percentage of their winnings. So, Liv, thanks for being on the show and welcome.
1: Thanks so much. Nice to be here. Thanks.
0: Excited to chat. And I think so. Let's just start at kind of a high level here. And
1: could you explain um, what REG Charity is to our listeners? Sure. So uh, REG Charity, well, REG stands for Raising for Effective Giving, which uh, is, I guess, a a pun on the word raising uh, and poker. Um, And what it effectively is, is a fundraising organization um, that encourages Uh, poker players, not just poker players, people within the poker industry and beyond it, you know, anyone who's sort of a professional who, um, you know, makes money and thinks about donating, um, and encourages them to donate to uh, a very, very carefully selected handful of, um, charities and nonprofits. Um, and yeah, we started in 2014, um, it was me and three other poker players and uh, some sort of full-time philosophers and philanthropists who sort of got the idea going. And uh, after, basically, I learned sort of about the idea of effective giving, effective altruism, sort of applying rationality um, and, you know, logic and reason to to the philanthropy space. So I was like, this this makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, the idea was we think poker players will also get this, being as they're people who sort of think about um, Sort of cost effectiveness and um, accounting for cognitive biases and, and these kind of things um, in in their decision making. Uh, you can sort of apply that same mental framework to to sort of your your charitable giving.
0: Got it. Got it. yeah. I like that. So you're essentially hitting up rich poker players for money. <laughs> <Pretty> much, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> saying yo, let's let's give some money. Um, how, what has that? I mean, how what has that been like in terms of? um and i'm thinking about like if you have these people who have made this money what has your experience been thus far in terms of reaching out to them and being like look you probably have enough you could like give some back and also there's these super effective ways to give it what has that process been like as as it's kind of spread in the in the community
1: um usually to be fair like with a lot of poker players i think Particularly the more successful ones, they realise sort of how how much of a charmed life they live. Um, mm. you know, don't get me wrong; like it can be a lot of hard work to you know to, to grind poker professionally, but at the same time, you have a lot of freedom um, over not only of your own sort of finances, but of your own time. Um, and uh, you, you know you get you sort of you you're definitely. In uh, I think you get the the impression that you, you've been quite fortunate. Um, to get to where you've gotten to, and so I think a lot of these players realize this, and therefore um, they have a sort of sense of like, well, I can help out there. I think we've seen what you know what it's like to be on the the end of good and bad luck, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. they can see, you know, they can take a look at the world and go, there's a lot of people who've just been a lot less lucky than me. They've, there's a lot of bad luck out there, and um, I think they feel, you know, sort of the sense of duty to help, to help others. Um, so I, yeah, it's, it's not usually that hard of a discussion to sort of point out to people, look, you know, I will, will you miss 5%? You know, you've just won a million dollars, will you miss 5% of it? Mm -hmm. Um, they're usually like, no, why, you know, like I, the act of giving in itself can make you feel good. And they, you know, because they know that it can be done in a very, um, well, well measured cost effective way. Um, they, it's usually not that much of a hard sell to, to certainly to the more rationally minded poker players.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. I think, I mean, so a couple points on that. The, the one is the act of giving good um, of just of just giving feels good. I, I felt that too. I I don't have very much money, but I recently gave some percentage of my wealth, just three thousand bucks to charity, and one of the ones was um, giving to giving three hundred and sixty bucks to uh, give directly, and you can essentially mm-hmm. support someone's basic income for thirty bucks a month. So I essentially gave someone a universal base or a basic income for a year, and, oh, yeah, and the yeah. studies just show, hey, this just gives you a long-term mindset it gives you it releases you from your scarcity mindset and it's just like it feels good you know it's like why that i'm not missing the 360 bucks and and giving it just just saying those words you can hear the enthusiasm of voice i'm I'm pumped about it um so i think that's true which is sweet um do you i think the other funny piece that you're getting at is that for poker players and and we'll talk about crypto folks in a bit but like just the pure act of like thinking about ooh if i do have money how can i most effectively give it doing that kind of problem solving is is fun for people i guess um, yeah
1: exactly i mean yeah if you like if you like numbers if you uh you know if you like some planning out some your decisions um it's you know like managing a portfolio when you you're making like deciding which uh altcoins to buy um <laughs> in the same way you can go okay well there's i want to give away x percentage this year of of my income um, how do I want to distribute it? I mean, you're not going to usually just sort of stick your finger in the air and, and sort of see which way the wind blows and, and decide which, which coins you buy. You, you sort of research and, and think, look at what, you know, what is the most promising, where well, you can do the same thing with um, figuring out which problems uh, you think are most important in the world, sort of like which are the biggest cause areas that we should be prioritized first, and then within those, which are the actual org- which charities or which organisations are actually making the most headway, which have the most promise. Um, so yeah, it's it's sort of like this, uh, there's there's I imagine quite a lot of crossover. I mean, I'm certainly not a trader by any means. Um, you know, I, I've got a passing interest in in crypto, um, particularly when yeah. I was buying so well last year. <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 sort of a there's, there's a lot of similarity in, in the way that you would sort of analyze which 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 coins you would buy to which charities you would want to donate to in order to yeah. have the biggest positive impact.
0: Yep, yeah, that makes sense. Is there... So for you personally, thinking about this spreading it within the the poker world, is it, I guess, I mean, for you, I guess let's ask for you personally, when you have um you've made a good amount of money in, in poker and poker and honestly some of the people that i chat about with the with some of the crypto people that I have on the podcast also have a lot of money do you when you have that much money i guess how how do you think about it do, are you do you feel like you're on a hedonic treadmill sometimes and you like get yourself a nice car or do you feel like you um when you're like you know self-taxing yourself and giving it to charities or whatever do you like how has that what stuff has been the most painful i guess you know like tell me about your own experience with giving
1: um not sure it anything I mean, as in like what has been is there like a an amount that I find too painful to give? You mean, or uh, look, yeah. I'm not?
0: I'm just looking for texture on. It. So for me as a person, I don't know what it's like to. I always. I pretty much am a person who goes in the world and 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 hits up richer people for money and says, "Look, we live in a world of abundance. Yeah, <laughs> you should give more money back." Um, and you as a person who actually has money, um, what is that? Tell me what that experience is like to to actively take significant amounts of money, you know, and, 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 and give it back? Is it, when is it painful? When is it not painful? Yeah. That, that's kind of, um, well,
1: so it, with, with something like poker where it's, you know, your income is so unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's a sort of difficult range of emotions mm-hmm. to deal with. But, you know, like the original model we started out with, with reg was saying, okay, well, uh, you know, how about you sign up to give somewhere between two and 5% each quarter. So it's like a regular thing. But a lot of poker players eventually sort of shied away from that because they were like, look, my income, I don't know, I can go two, three quarters in a row with losing, um, you know, or, or not making as much profit as I'd hoped and then maybe have like a big windfall in one quadrant. So, um, I think the irregularity of the income can make it very difficult and, and, you know, it's the same, it's, it's very easy to sort of find justifications to not give as much as you originally planned to, even after you've won, because you're like, well, I know I got lucky, you know, to have won as much as I just did this in the last few months. So um, I don't want to, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I keep, make sure I have enough of a, of a nest egg. But I think it's, you know, you have to sort of keep an eye out for these sort of signs in yourself where you're looking for like bad justifications um, mm-hmm. to, to essentially sort of, we you know weasel away out of whatever commitment you had said to yourself at the beginning of the year like my partner he um he's he's been very strict on was like after learning about effective altruism he's like i want to give away 10 percent of my income each year without fail mm-hmm. um and to be fair to him he's someone who is able to just completely <laughs> detach himself from you know if he has a losing year he's one of them, so he'll just shrug his shoulders and be like okay well i had a losing year and mm-hmm. um uh, and so I don't know. I mean, a percentage is a percentage, right. But, yeah. um, at the same time, like I, I I've actually, like, I've had times where I feel like, where I feel more bad now, where I've had like a bad, a bad few months or a bad year. And mm-hmm. so I can't give as much, you know, I give the same percentage, but it's yeah. not as much. And then I just feel bad. Like, well, actually maybe, you know, is this, what am I going to do with this extra 20 K? Like, I know that it's going to directly save around three lives. So I'm by not giving it, I'm making, you know, am I, am I effectively killing three people? Like, you know, there's a, all these kind of moral dilemmas that you run into. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I think it's, a, you know, there's, there is a, a balance to be struck and it really does depend on the individual. Um, yeah. but I, I, mean, my advice is always just if in doubt sort of like look at the numbers you know, and go realistically, okay, what is, what is the amount that I can survive on per month? Um, okay. That's it's X. What is the amount that I will be? You know, uh, you know that's a bare minimum. What's the amount that I will actually be very, very comfortable on? And then find some some number in between. Um, and yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, you know, I think we should all be giving far more than we, what we currently are. But at the same time, um, if it if it causes us more distress than it gives us joy, yeah. that's not good either. Um, yeah. And you've got to think about sort of future earn as well. It might be. Yeah, more yeah
0: like that. I, I think there's a like a difference between uh, uh, this win-win thing that you talk about. is really funny actually that we have a, when we're going through the world and we're like, oh man, making money, making money. And for me right now, like my rule is after I make more than 4,000 bucks a month, AKA um, if I, and, and at that point you have essentially more money doesn't make you happier. After about 4,000 bucks a month, then I'm after that I give 50% back to um, various effective charities. And it's been funny for me to learn about um, to, that feeling that you're talking about where I. Personally, feel weird about like I want to get above that four thousand dollar number, not just yeah. for me, but because I want to give more. You know, so that's the kind of funny thing that you're talking about. And I think that you're the other thing you talk about, which is producing ranges, is really powerful. Where you say, "What is the least needs version? What is the most the super comfortable version?" And then for people to just try to, you know, as Lao Tzu said, be the person in the room with the least needs and try to vector towards that that lower number yeah. seems powerful. Yeah, um, I think
1: so that seems be the objective. Ultimately, yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. So, so kind of zooming out back to the the kind of um you know effective altruism more generally um could you tell me a little bit more about uh the kinds of causes that you are most interested in because there's lots of different there's the existential risk ones there's kind of current world developing health ones there's kind Mm of the meta ones like promoting effective altruism or institutionalized decision making so where which ones are you interested in
1: i think the one that sort of is on my mind the most um, is, is the sort of global catastrophic risk as existential risk stuff. Um, and as, in all honesty, like largely for selfish reasons, because that's the thing that sort of directly affects me the most likely, you know, um, out of, out of many of these things. Um, so yeah, in terms of like, where do I currently donate to those, those are the areas that um, like the sort of the, the basically these extremely, Neglected cause areas that are surrounding many global catastrophic risks. You know, there's there's ones like climate change, which actually you know pretty much everyone's aware of, and there's a lot of people sort of working on the topic. Um, but then there's stuff like bio risk from um, the in- sort of increasing likelihood that you know someone with an, a postgrad in uh, sorry a, 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 uh, uh, even an undergrad in biology in a few years' might be had to genetically engineer some funky new virus. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and like all these like emerging techs that are appearing that actually have these risks that aren't really being thought about, um, and so there's just there's more and more sort of uh, these these little tiny sort of risk of massively impactful disasters uh, building up over time that uh, need a lot more of the world's smartest minds working on. Um, so there's this sort of bottleneck, not only in funding but also in then you know the ability to get these. You know, to, to get the, the smartest minds away from actually working on building the technology as fast as possible to working on, okay, how do we build the technology in the in also the safest way possible? Um, because you know, safety is not as sexy as actually just building the thing. So yeah, um, so like that sort of the area that I I, I guess I'm most interested in, um, and yeah. um, and then in, in terms of like what is like sort of my am I emotionally most invested in is honestly uh i've always been just a huge animal lover animal uh, animals in the environment and so on and um the sort of daily holocaust that is going on in the animal world with factory farming um deeply upsets me Just the more i learn about it the worse it gets so it's like i I never find a piece of information i'm like oh okay that makes a little bit not so bad no it's just the more i learn the worse it really is um and so uh, I'm very interested in sort of um, anything that's sort of trying to make, you know, the conditions for the animals living on these, in, you know, in, the, in these really bad factory farms just a little bit better, um, reducing the numbers that we're incessantly breeding um, and in the long run, uh, you know, technology that could hopefully replace it, such as clean meat and so on. Um, so, yeah, that, those are the sort of the two main areas I'm focused on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think that the, uh, and this is, so the the funny thing with something like effective altruism and just trying to do good in general is, is, and this gets at what you're, the different cause areas that you're talking about, is like when you say, okay, we want to do good, the question becomes, well, for who on what time scale? And when we ask that question, well, if we're talking about um, the first piece there, the kind of existential risks, well, then the time scale gets like pushed into what they call like humanity's cosmic endowment which means right. not only people alive today but all the people who are alive in the future and if we like accidentally mess it up and like they show it's like you know a 10% chance or whatever of humanity going extinct by the end of the century or whatever then not only it was sad for the people today but it was also super sad for the you know millions billions trillions of people that would live you know way into the future so that's kind of the weird long term future mindset and then the other one um, which is also super powerful is what you say for who on what timeline and if you say well who is not just humans um, Um, it's not just people in, you know, the Western world or people in uh, the general world. It's also people, it's also animals. And like you say, when you think about that, you're like, oh man. And the thing that I learned the other day, which was surprising is, it's like tens of billions of um land animals are factory farmed every year and then i learned it was like about a trillion um fish every year and again fish not as much connection there and questions about consciousness or whatever but like uh that kind of uh mind, i was like wow that is a lot of fish that are killed every year Right. Um, so- it, it, it,
1: you can sort of do you know yeah. a, a, a sort of an expected value calculation to an extent you know like yeah. sure even with something like a, even if you think that a fish has very little moral weight yeah um you know you think they're exceptionally dumb and maybe they, they only feel maybe uh, a hundredth the pain yeah. of something like a pig or a dog. Yep. Still, if there's a trillion of them, <laughs> you do the, you do the, the math. It
0: <laughs> yeah, um, that's a path. yeah.
1: It still adds up to a lot of moral weight. And, like, that's really, like, the sort of best framework we have for thinking about these things. Um, yeah. Although, actually, I heard, again, like, another dark, uh, <laughs> dark thought surrounding sort of this animal suffering idea is actually that, there, you could make an argument that the less sort of neurons or the le- the, le- the smaller the brain, the more basic the brain, the more in, it, like uh, evolutionary um, evolutionarily important the, the, the sensation of pain is to the animal mm-hmm. it's survival, yeah. it's less able to reason and think and make smart decisions outside of like pain stimulus. And so actually the, ex- the experience of like uh, a fish having its fin chopped off might be, many orders of magnitude worse than the experience for us having our arm cut off because Mm -hmm. actually like we, we, you know, we can sort of re we don't need so much pain stimulus in order to to know that we shouldn't get our arm cut off. Whereas a fish might like really need that. So yeah, there's that dark little uh, (laughs) mind experiment to go down as well. Um, anyway, yeah. So, I mean, but nonetheless, like, like with all these things, you know, that you can, if you if you think it's very low moral weight you just have to still have to like multiply it by the numbers and in, in some cases, particularly with like animal factory farming the numbers are just like are oh, so huge you know something like 70 billion yep, yep, animals yep, yep. are killed a year like land animals are killed yep. a year um yep. that wouldn't have otherwise been and they're like generally not killed in good ways and it's yep. not they had a happy life before that yep. uh, so yeah it's pretty rough
0: yeah, so so kind of so I agree with the roughness. Let, let's kind of let's, um, take a step back to the the long term future stuff for a second and say you just wrote a piece for Vox on the Fermi paradox. Um, yeah. Could you tell us a bit? And because this kind of makes talking about more dark things, this might make it darker uh, in terms of our <laughs> humanity and existential risk, or whatever. So tell me what what tell us about that article.
1: Sure. Um, so basically, it was built of uh, or based on um, an article, uh, a paper. That the Future of Humanity Institute, which is like a research sort of uh, think tank in yep. in, the, in the University of Oxford, um, they just uh, published this paper that did renewed analysis on the Drake Equation, which is the sort of very famous, famously bad equation that is used to try and estimate the likelihood of other intelligent civilizations being, you know, being around in the galaxy, um, aliens essentially. Mm-hmm. And you know, before whenever people that tried to plug numbers into this Drake equation, it would come out with an extremely high expected number of intelligent civilizations that we should be able to detect. And so this sort of creates uh, the illusion of a paradox because it's like, well, you know, okay, so sure. There are like so many stars and planets, even in our galaxy alone, the universe is so old. Yeah, why are we all these signals, you know, this number that we keep getting out of the Drake equation is so high, but we're not seeing any evidence like what the hell's going on. Um, and basically the the Oxford folks, did a far more accurate method of analyzing the sort of the state of our, our current state of knowledge, um, across like the factors within the Drake, the Drake equation. Um, and when you do that, and then you also apply like Bayesian update, like, uh, you know, some evidence updating with the evidence and the fact Mm -hmm. that we're not seeing any, um, any observations so far, you, you put all that together and it comes out that we're roughly somewhere between, um, I'm trying to remember the percentages, but, uh, definitely like above 75% to be the only intelligent civilization in our galaxy, and in fact, around a 50 50 chance being the only intelligent civilization within the entire observable universe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which is pretty much the most groundbreaking thing I could ever imagine I would ever read. Uh, (laughs) so much so that i was like there needs to be an article written about this like this this paper is amazing um and uh and also that you know there's there's a lot of moral weight then to that that raises a lot of philosophical questions like okay well well, if if you know it turns out to be true then what does this mean for us in terms of sort of like is, is there extra moral weight on us not to go extinct yes or no um and so yeah that's kind of what it was about
0: yeah that's tough because it's like because you can have the mindset of like oh well we tried our best and like it turns out that like the you know artificial superintelligence did end up killing us but it's fine because there's other conscious life in the universe and so we feel fine about it, but like this is like oh well we might be the only one so like right. let's not screw it up
1: yeah, you know? exactly like i mean the universe if the universe does have you know wants and desires which you know that's uh out to the jury but um it would be pretty pissed i think
0: yeah exactly
1: when exactly humans like, when exactly. And, like blew up their planet like what the hell it took me 13 billion years to like make that happen and yeah. now like it's now done and gone and um yeah and so basically like the, you know it, the, what what i should like clarify is that this you know the paper isn't like making the statement this is how you know we are alone in the universe it's just saying based upon the current state of sort of astrobiological knowledge um if you do the statistical analysis properly which in the past it had not been done um basically this is what th- th- you know comes out of the drake equation
0: yeah yeah, that makes
1: uh, even sense. when you know we do find more information you know perhaps we'll find out that um it, we might understand how life actually gener- like really got started on Earth, because right now we still don't really know. Um, if we get some more clues there, or we find, uh, of course, if we see signs of actually an intelligent civilization somewhere else in the galaxy, well, that's going to massively shift shift the, sort of, the the numbers we have, the, you know, the ranges of uncertainty. Um, but, yeah, I mean, a- as of now, our best information is to go ahead, assuming that we are pretty much alone. Um, yep. And I think that strengthens the moral case that we should get our shit together and not blow ourselves up.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so do you think, so does this stuff make you, and you kind of made this distinction earlier between the long-term future and then kind of like the emotional um, uh, kind of animal stuff. Does this, when you think about uh, us in the, and I think a lot of people and some of my friends who work in effective altruism and, and the kind of modern day existential risks and stuff like that, they get, they get stressed around these things. Well, what is your, how do you, once you start thinking about these things and think about the percentage that we might all die, do you get stressed? What is your like emotional response to to this kind of stuff?
1: Oh, it's, it's everything. (laughs) Um, it's, I mean, I'll go from abject, abject terror to a sort of, uh, not impartial, but just sort of shrugging my shoulders and going, well, You know, what what I'll tend to do is I'll go, when I'm in the sort of, like, fully in the grips of terror thinking about it, then I'll be, like, very much sort of deep in the research and working, you know, thinking about ways to sort of reduce the risks um, in the ways that I think I can maybe have some tiny amount of impact. Um, But then when, when I'm in my other sort of emotional state about it where I'm just like, oh, maybe this is never going to be solved and we don't have, you know, the 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 possibility space that we'll actually get it right is too is you know, it's too unlikely in, in all the spaces of ways it can go wrong. You know, so I'm when I'm in this really despondent state, then I'll just be like, okay, I need to be focusing on how do I just make however many years we have left, uh or life on Earth has left <laughs> Uh, a little bit less, less bad, you know, a bit more pleasant. Um, and so then I'll be thinking more about like reducing the factory farming problems. So um, yeah, those are my two like main states. And I mean, I'm not saying that's like, you know, that I'm either in one or the other and I have nothing else in between. I, I'm also very, very good at compartmentalizing it. Nice. And, you know, just being like getting on with, you know, Brush your teeth or- or, you know <laughs> brushing my teeth and, you know, stressing about, you know, Oh, I haven't paid my car insurance or something. You know, something mundane. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it, it. My I wouldn't say that my brain is particularly set on one. Um, I wouldn't even ha- want a hazard a percentage of what you know. Uh, what how, how often I'm in one emotional state or the other, but it's generally a mixed bag and it's often quite stressful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think for me, the th- I think the thing that you talked about there is essentially the main strategy that I use, which is a bucketing things into the things I can control and the things I can't control thing, where it's like, look, so like we were born at this point in time we're trying to do our best we've we learned about these things now we're trying to use them to do our best and like if it all goes to shit or whatever that's okay then it did um and but we but we tried you know and that and and there's a some that feeling of trying feels good i think that it would be weird if it would be sad state if the effective altruist community learned enough about our current status quo that they were like well we're screwed enough such that we should only concentrate on the people alive today you know that would be like a, a bad indicator Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked, computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. Keepy is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at Shapeshift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is PIN protected, which provides protection if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And, if your KeepKey is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line? You'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit keepkey.com to order yours today and use the code humanist10 for a limited time 10% discount. Um, So with that kind of mindset, so um, let's talk about uh, like pushing back on effective altruism. It's interesting, Vox, you just wrote a piece for Vox. I know Vox is starting to do a actual, like they're going to do a big deep dive into effective altruism, which will be cool. Yeah. Um, What, uh, for you personally, though, what are your, uh, what, what are your, what are your issues with effective altruism, with consequentialism, with that kind of, this kind of world?
1: Um, I mean, I can't say I have like any like strong issues with the, with the actual philosophy itself, because Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, if, if there was something that I felt that philosophy was doing wrong, it would be something pretty obvious. and, And so they would be doing it already um i you know the, to to say oh that they're doing that wrong would imply that i have a greater knowledge than it and i definitely don't you know than, than the sum of all the people currently working on it um but i mean it, it might sound a bit silly but the reason why i'm such a big fan of of the ea philosophy is that it's it's all about like being very good at updating and like uh, genuinely changing changing your mind in the face of new evidence um you know like the people i i've gotten to know in it what they uh, Aston- like i find so astonishing is that they're genuinely happy when they find out that they were wrong about something they're like oh cool I, I, it's, oh nice i can update my model and it's more accurately you know an accurate model of of, of what reality is yeah. there, there's very little like attachment to sort of i guess like egoic attachment to the belief of being right mm-hmm. um and like that's something that i you know i personally struggle with i think most of us do mm-hmm. um and i mean i'm sure they they also individually do as well but like as a whole like that's you know that's I've never met a group of people who are better at being like that. And I, it's a goal I definitely aspire to. Um, but I think like, I, I think it does. I think, I think it can and does struggle with sometimes Is like um, just sort of the, the, the image or the, the perception that people outside of, uh, of the movement sometimes have on it, you know, because they're like, Oh, it's about saying that some charities are bad and some charities are good. And mm. you know, like it's like, people get like, you know, can understand get quite sort of defensive about that, you know, particularly if they've been particularly focused on a particular cause area, which, you know, then isn't like perhaps included under the umbrella of effective altruism. You know, I, I can understand why that can create sort of a negative sentiment. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think that's an area that it maybe needs to work on in general, just sort of its perception, um, uh, you know, and I mean, it, it's always going to be a tricky thing where you're sort of, trying to say, look, we should try and keep emotions out of our decision-making around philanthropy as much as possible. When at the same time, like philanthropy is ultimately driven by emotions, you know, mm-hmm. what humans desire to go and help someone to do good, to, you know, help an animal out of a trap or something, you know, those are driven by an emotional response. And, um, it makes me sad when like the sort of the image that people have is like, all oh, these effective altruists, they're all these like, you know, emotionless calls, people who just think purely in numbers. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, it's, like no one is like that, you know, and, and it's, it's about learning to sort of combine the head and the heart together. Um, so I think that's probably maybe like an area that just needs to be mindful, like the, the, the community could be mindful of is just like how to make sure that that point gets across. Um, and I think, you know, they, I think it's generally doing a good job, but um, it's, it's a tricky sort of area to navigate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So generally, you're you're pretty you, you not too much. I, I do agree with you to say that when people are correct about their process, then it's hard for them to be. Um. Then then you can claim incorrect on some small things in it. Um. But then they're just like, oh, am I incorrect? Well, tell me why. You know. And you're like, oh, sweet. Well, then now you've changed. So being kind of having being meta right or having a correct process is is really nice. And an example of that within the EA community is this thing called double. Double Crux, I think. And it's where uh, conversation (laughs) style, where you, instead of trying to win the debate, you're actively, the entire time, you're essentially just pushing forward what you see as the weakest part of your argument and letting and how you could be changed on it and trying to see if the other person can do so. And that's what each side is trying to do. And you kind of like win by pushing out the best parts and then talking about the best attack vectors on those parts and then having the other person change it. So it's kind of, you know, a weird mindset around you like, mean trying like,
1: pushing to out. yeah, you, put, you mean like, it's like the opposite of debating basically, yeah. right? So yeah, you're like, you're, you're trying to straw man your own argument instead of, you're steel manning the other person, trying to make look for the strongest parts in theirs and looking for the weakest parts in yours, because actually the jo- the goal is to come to the objective truth, and not just win um, that, yeah. for winning's sake. Yeah,
0: I think and on the, on the note of. Um you know, uh, effective altruists are just into like, you know, earning to give, like going and working on Wall Street, or, in, and, you know, just like giving that money to good, or like, you know, this charity's right and this charity's wrong, or whatever. I think that, yeah, I like the mindset, or I like talking about effective altruism as, a, and this is true, as a group of people who are just based around trying to answer the question, how can we do the most good? And then exactly. when you have it as a question, then it kind of can be a little bit less um, aggressive, you know, and they've thought a lot about it, so it can get aggressive. But um, so I guess, do you, though, do you think a little bit pushback? back on this do you feel like consequentialism aka an outcomes mindset aka utilitarianism aka you know ends over means do you feel like the ends always justify the means
1: um i never want to say without anything with a hundred percent um but i found the more and more i've learned and applied it to my life uh, the more sort of i i'm I finding it really hard to pick holes in it um and i honestly learning like the difference between sort of a consequentialist mindset as opposed to a deontological um rules-based mindset when i learned that a friend of mine like was a like philosophy major just like drew it on the back of a napkin one time at dinner it was like the most light bulb moments i've ever had mm-hmm. um so i mean the for, like there are uh, for sure like situations where it's not optimal i think like the, the thing is is like as you know in the past we had like when when there was very little sort of actual understanding of how the world worked you know in the middle ages we didn't really know you know we didn't know what temperature was we didn't know how you know, we didn't even have like basic science you know the scientific process anything like that you know we we didn't understand how a society could work together. People had to live by these like draconian fixed rules that, you know, whether they they believed they were passed down from God or whatever, like, because that was really the only way to, to, to make things work. Like there was no, there was no room for granularity or nuance. Um, But as our understanding of the way the world works, you know, of, of like having actual data, um, to sort of see what causes, you know, what causes things, what is cause and effect, and so on. As we've like gotten more and more into this like data driven world, that's allowed the room for more like consequentialist uh, decision making. Yep. Yep. Um, we don't need these like the, you know rules that that are very sort of in some ways myopic and and black and white and simple. We've we've, it, we've enabled room for more granularity, and I mean, in, in like a hundred years' time, assuming everything goes right, we're going to have even more like understanding of you know, I don't think we'll ever have like Laplace's demon style like prediction abilities and so on. But still, you know, like I, as as progress, you know, as technology and scientific understanding and and just like computation increases, we'll we'll be able to move more and more to like consequentialist reasoning and and, and morality effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. As a rule of thumb, I think that's the trend we'll be going, pardon the pun, using a rule of thumb, but, you know, that's the trend we'll be going more towards, um, and I I think it is a more optimum one than, like, it it feels to me like living rules-based is kind of just going backwards. Mm -hmm. Um, But That said, there are still definitely instances where we just, we need it in order to function still right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that you're correct in saying that um, consequentialism can kind of come into its moment now. I think one argument could say that it is um, it might lose some of its power in the future as the world becomes more fast and complex, and uh, and mm-hmm. if we aren't able to kind of keep up with that, and this is kind of like a Taleb anti fragility long tail risk black swan argument that says, hey, if if the consequentialist can't actually put a probabilistic chance on a certain like x-risk thing happening in the future then maybe uh then then maybe we can't have that mindset so i think i think that's moderately powerful i do agree with you though that like consequentialism the crazy thing with it is that it can kind of um it can kind of beat you from a process level where you say wait wait well i think that in this situation it was bad for me to i should have a, a virtue ethics or a deontology or a means mindset here because um in this situation it was very powerful and you say well why do you think it was powerful and then people always end up talking in terms of the impacts and the outcomes and You're like, yeah
1: i mean i i mean either way i think it's extremely important to have flexibility in, yeah. in the way you approaching that. And, like, there are definitely situations, like, you, like that's a perfect example um, with these, you know, these black swan-type tail risk things um, where, at present, consequentialism is not necessarily the best way of, of approaching it. I mean, that said, though, I mean, you're, you're, you're still, you know, you can still do an uh, approximated expected value calculation on these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you're still ultimately looking at the impact as as your guide of whether or not something you know of, of how to make a decision. So I don't know it all feels to me like it all still ultimately boils down to that, but I could well be wrong. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, sweet. So, so yeah. Generally speaking, effective altruism good. Um, so let's kind of um, let's talk a little bit about crypto for a second, um, just because there's some. Um, a, there's some overlap in terms of reg charity, in terms of like the reg charity folks and like getting, you know, the people in uh, getting the rich people in crypto to kind of give um, and then the, there's also overlap just in terms of like a interesting kind of crypto kind of games mindset, poker games mindset. Um, so just I, j- I'm just curious, what kind of how are you currently thinking about the cryptocurrency world from a poker player perspective? <laughs>
1: um, I mean, the most I guess the most meaningful takeaway I've had from it. So, you know, I, I, I'd i had a bit of Bitcoin since, I don't know, 2015, a very small amount. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, things started really kicking off sort of around, well, I was around April of last year, I started getting a bit more involved um, and that worked out pretty well. Uh, and But what, what's interesting is sort of, uh, you know, I know. You know, in, in poker, you learn very quickly that just because you're winning over a period of time, mm. that doesn't necessarily mean that you're making good, you know, good decisions. That your strategies are sound. You know, like I've, we often see, like very, very bad poker players going on, going on, you know, winning a big tournament that you know beating a thousand people and and believing that then they're the best. Uh, you know, or conversely, it can go the other way around. You know, like basically, results and outcomes aren't. That they're correlated, but they're not very strong, strongly correlated to skill, especially over the short term. And, you know, with what I can imagine a lot of people who got involved with crypto you know, around summer of last year, uh, they probably came away thinking, well, I'm the best at this. You know, I chose such good coins and like, look how much money I've made. But, you know, it's very easy to feel like the best decision maker in the world when you're just in a bull market where even the worst, the worst players are also winning. Yeah, um sure. so i guess that's like uh, the biggest sort of parallel that that i can draw yeah. between I, them. I,
0: think that's, I mean i think that's super powerful and it's i guess resulting is the is the term that poker players use where you yeah, say hey yeah. um yeah. i it blah 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 happened and i won or i lost it's like wait wait, wait. you shouldn't think about the win or the lose you should, you should think about the mindset and process that you took in yeah. order to get to that thing and i think that yeah a lot of, in the crypto yeah, world it's like
1: Done like that, that decision, decision yeah. a thousand times. How does that turn out? Not just that one time. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly, exactly. And and I think that the funny thing with cryptos, you have. I mean, people. <laughs> some people are just. And as you talk about it, like, okay, you got it in April. Well, it was good you got it in April and not, you know, like, you know, five months later or something, you know? And so there's yeah. kind of, and was that really an indicator of your, you know, your intellect and your ability to, you know, do signal to noise within the internet or whatever? Maybe, and maybe no, not.
1: It was my ability to surround myself with people who have their finger on the pulse better than me or uh-huh. um, smarter than me on these kind of things. And just when I hear like a critical mass of them all talking about it, I was like, well, I guess I'll, I'll get involved a bit, yeah. <laughs> a bit more heavily. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: it was that was it was again it was just more a case of good fortune. Um, yeah.
0: Well, also. I think I think that that kind of process. I think that the the takeaway there would be, hey, for you personally, it was a thing where you said, hey, when there's enough of a mass of my friends talking about these, smart friends talking about, it is likely to be the case that this thing has is worth some value in some ways and i oh look i can invest in it and therefore i will and ah and then the resulting mindset would say, okay in in this case it actually went up though it could have gone down just as well you could have had that initial indicator of lots of friends talking about it without the thing actually going up in the future um the other thing that's tough here is like thinking about as you say, like when everything's going up, everything's going up. So the other perspective that one could have here is kind of a first principles perspective around like how to value these currencies, and that's a whole other thing in and of itself. Where you say, okay, what should the actual value of these various currencies be? Because they have different kinds of valuation methodologies and whatever, um, and that's all hard too. Uh, uh, quite another question I have for you though in this crypto land slash games land is: so a, a lot of people when they talk about Um, cryptocurrency stuff, um, there's this idea of mechanism design where you essentially do reverse game theory where you say, I want to get this outcome and how can I create a system that will create that outcome? Um, And so you're essentially using incentives to get there. And I think that that's a very similar mindset and people in the crypto world talk about, lots of them are like ex-game designers or ex-game players in various ways. Um, I think that poker definitely has some of that too. So um, I guess, do you... I mean, I'm not really sure what my question is here, but like, <laughs> what, what kind of games do you like? Or do you, how do you think about <laughs> games? Have you ever made your own games, board games? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm generally pretty obsessed with games. Um, mostly just because I'm just so ridiculously competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I need a to like scratch that itch. So like, uh, I mean, like, I'm, I'm currently having big chess addiction. Like it's an actual mm-hmm. problem uh I just play online on like you know these like live games you can play online like and and, and it's 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 bad like there, there's like the 30 minute games where it's like nice and deep and you can actually mm-hmm. think and really d- deeply strategize and improve your chess and then it goes all the way down to like 10 minute five minute and as I, I just discovered one minute games which is literally <laughs> just like you're barely thinking you're just like it's it's who can move the pieces fastest and um, and it's like crack you know not to not to equate drugs to chess but that's for like you. that's what I, I, it is for me it's 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 a bad situation that I do when I'm like a little bit stressed I'm like I'm gonna play some one minute blitz chess um but I love it um, So, so yeah, know, so that's that's like a particular game that I'm very into another a really fun one is uh Hive which is mm. kind of like um I just yeah my my boyfriend Igor and I we discovered it recently and it's very fun it's kind of like chess like but you build the Build the board yourself, um, and I'm, if if someone's into chess, I think they would really really enjoy this game. It's called Hive. Okay,
0: cool. um, I to so- say I want to check out Hive. Um, have you heard of Ricochet Robots? By the way, no. Tell me about Ooh, it. it. It's good. It's really good. Um, it is a game where you have a bunch of there's a board and you have all these little five little robots on the board and you're trying to get the robots to go from their positions to um like these goal positions um but the way you have to move them it's kind of like they're on ice so when you kind of like do a move um, they move until they hit a wall or they hit another robot okay. um, no, sure. yeah, yeah so they like, kind of bounce around and what happens the way a game works is like it happens in rounds and at the beginning you flip up a a goal that um, a certain robot is trying to go to and then everybody just looks at the board and tries to you know count out a path essentially for that robot to the goal and say okay one two three four five it bounces around okay and then I would say seven because I see like a seven move um, bounce to get the robot there I say seven I start the time Timer, and then other people try to get ones beneath seven. And it. Uh, I have found it has a very high correlation between people who are into chess, poker, computer science stuff, um, and loving ricochet robots. So um, I'll send you oh, a link afterwards. But...
1: It, sounds, it sounds like the dream. Thank it's you nice. for it's finding nice. my new method of wasting my life away.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly, nice. Um, so kind of maybe in this final kind of bucket here, moving away from crypto and games, uh, one thing I just want to do is to try this... I mean, so there's this there's this book called Thinking in Bets. Um, there's this, uh, you gave a TED Talk recently called A Number Speaks a Thousand Words. And th- these are all things from poker players' mindsets where you say, hey, I think in numbers all the time and I apply that to the poker world, but I can also apply that um, to the uh, the real world and think, in, think probabilistically in the real world. So I guess, could you, what are the ways in your life um, that you kind of apply probabilistic thinking um, in like a... To non poker situations in your own life.
1: Um, I mean, in all, all honesty, like I now try, I, I try to build the habit of, you know, whether I'm like trying to make a decision about, you know, am I gonna am I gonna be on time? To, how, how am I gonna make this flight? Instead of sort of think, thinking to myself, I'll, I'll probably make it. Mm-hmm. I'll actually try and put some granularity on that because the word probably is extremely large like i don't even know what i mean when i say it to myself um so yeah i i i found myself usually just putting some kind of range uh percentage range on you know and any kind of prediction that i'm having to make whether it's literally you know sh- will i make it on time for dinner um, is is you know, is, is it, is it going to rain? You know, I mean, is it going to rain tonight is a classic one, but mm-hmm. you know, like really just having like that, trying to put a degree of granularity into, to which I'm comfortable, yeah. um, on these decisions. Um, an example I actually like, like to talk about is, um, I even do it in our, like in my love life, like my, my partner actually, we were trying to decide, are we going to move? Should I sell my property? And should we move somewhere else, move to another country? And we were like, you know, these are major decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like we well what do we think the likelihood is that we'll still be together in three years time I'm like well oh, that's a good like and like we both like thought about it like quite critically and you know both came up with and wrote and we're like okay actually let's work out let's do our one year and 10 year predictions as well mm-hmm. screw it and so you know we both wrote them down independently on a piece of paper and then showed them to each other okay. and you know, luckily we were intense, pretty much
0: <laughs> intense <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know like i um I mean, and of course it like takes a high degree of comfort and security, I think to be able to sort of do that with one another. But at the same time, like we're both so trained in thinking in, in probabilities and we know how valuable it is, you know, like even if like I'd come to the conclusion where I was like, actually, Oh, I think the number only 50% or 30%. Even if I didn't have the guts to actually write that down, that would have been information to myself yeah. to be like, shit, maybe I'm not as confident in this as I, as I thought I was. Um, and so yeah, like I I, I there are these sort of like sort of things that we hold kind of sacred that we don't we, we don't feel comfortable trying to estimate in a in a quantitative way or even estimate at all. Um like like that or like our or or the strength of a feeling that we have about someone, or I think my friend is pissed at me, Mm -hmm. you know, how confident am I in that? People are like, oh, you know, I just feel it. I don't know. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I mean, like put a, put a degree of confidence on it, like 20%, 80%, whatever. Um, and yeah, so I, and I, it's it's definitely a skill that is very developable. The more you get into the habit of it, the more it seems alien to not think in numbers in that way.
0: Yeah. Um, are you the same I'm, I'm the same i'm definitely the same and i think um and it's and it's and just for the listeners i mean it's a great thing as you say to take any kind of word that implies uncertainty whether it's um probably or maybe or unlikely or whatever and just try to put a number for it um a, and a funny thing that i'd like to ask you is how so once you at the beginning you start doing it and just say ah there's probably like a 70% chance this happens or whatever um later though you cuz you start to add your air bars to it where you say okay uh there's like a you know a 50 to 90% chance that this happens or whatever um do you find yourself ha- like are you air barring now as well
1: <laughs> i mean yeah i mean because you know when i when i make my estimation of 70 percent, unless i have like an immense amount of back data of like a specific situation before like yeah my my uncertainty is going to be pretty wide so i have found it's more accurate um particularly when relaying information to someone else to give them a range yeah. because a it doesn't imply a sort of false degree of confidence but b it also like um sort of checks in with myself um yeah. so yeah like it's uh, you know if i'm if i say oh i'm i'm certainly going to be there what do i mean by certainly um that's somewhere but usually between like 90 to 90 to 99 percent mm-hmm. um and i actually made like a, a chart uh that i put in my ted talk that's um you know of these like common commonly used words of estimation um and, and like it was like you know, with, the, with the little corresponding bars of which which probabilities they they should, or at least I think they should apply to. Yep. Um, but if there's there's a really fun um, chart somewhere out there, I think if you, uh, try, I'll try. I'll, you can put it in the in the uh, sure, podcast notes. Yeah. Um, where, where they actually pulled a bunch of people. What what do you think the word "probably" means? Yeah. And like, they were literally numbers from everywhere from twenty percent to ninety five percent. Yeah. So it just doesn't mean anything basically when you use it. <laughs> and like something like maybe maybe literally means nothing it could be anything from zero to a hundred percent and yet people use it all the time perhaps you know intentionally to like Give themselves wiggle room, but yeah. um yeah, these, these words are bad in general. Um and I th- it's much better if we just speak in numbers.
0: Yeah, yeah. We hope for a future society in which uh we Yeah, I mean honestly it would be nice <laughs> if everybody used these kinds of air bars. And I think that the funny thing, the great thing with the you giving a probability and giving the air bars is so nice. And sometimes my friends will make fun of me for it. We'll say, look, I don't know, I think it's probably, you know, but like, you know, twenty to eighty percent that this happens. And they're like, that's a huge like that gives me no information. And you're like, look, I'm giving you information. By telling you that, right, that's such exactly. a good
1: But um, I'm letting you know that I'm also uncertain. Yeah, it's like yeah. that. Would be well, the point is, it's the truth.
0: Uh, yeah, I know you- it's annoying for you, but yeah.
1: <laughs> you want me to sugarcoat it and say, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. no, that's not good either. Exactly.
0: Um, the other funny thing is when I, I've taught English at various points in time, I pass and when I'm trying to teach them about these words, and they're like, "Well, what is the difference between like maybe and possibly?" And I'm like, <laughs> "I don't really know." Um, well, yeah. we're pretty much out of time today, Liv. Um, thank you for chatting about reg charity, and effective altruism, and long-term risk, and uh, vegetarianism, and and also thinking in bets and uh, crypto. Um, and I guess for someone to learn about you on the interwebs, uh, where should they go?
1: Um,
0: like your Twitter profile. My web, yeah,
1: my my Twitter. My, my I have a website as well, though I'm not very good at updating it. Yeah, Twitter is usually What's the best thing. Uh, It's just my name, forward slash live underscore Um,
0: B-O-E B-O-E-R-E-E Yeah, that's one. Nice. Um, Well, yeah, check live out there. Um, And if you want to support me on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Okay, thank you everybody and goodbye.
1: Bye, thank you.